were all poetic friends, laughing away the afternoon, full of honey, wine, and smoky stories of Cuban music, weeping from old radios, falling out of a postcard sky after the neighborhood parties ended and nobody wanted to go home. These are the beautiful, poetic words of James Nave, our guest today on Native Digital, Native Analog. Welcome to my den, my friends. This is a very unique and special episode of this show. You're going to hear a discussion between myself and James about the power of the spoken, written, and the sung word. And uh, you might just hear me singing later in this episode, so definitely stay tuned for that. You have to tell me how it is, and who knows, I might do it on future episodes. But I'm excited today to introduce you to James. He's such an incredible human being. Let me tell you a little bit about him. James has presented well over 10,000 shows and workshops as a poet, a teacher, and a storyteller. And he's performed all across the world, from Ireland to Bangkok to Lima and all across the U.S. If you're tempted to turn off today's episode or maybe skip to the next one, if you're a business owner or an HR executive, I encourage you to not. Because today's episode will be one of the most relaxing, metaphorical, and deep discussions you're going to hear in a long time. Because we talk about language and how it's evolved over the years. But here's the thing. Later in the episode, we also discuss what is poetry to Generation Z? And if you're a leader, for example, or a business owner, and you neglect to understand the power of the creativity and artistic expression that Gen Z craves to engage us at work, you need to listen to the end of this episode where James and I dissect what it means to employ the power of creativity in your work environments. And don't miss my solo cast on Friday of this week where we dissect exactly how you can put creativity, embed it into your culture, and use it in your team meetings to engage all different generations. If you are someone who has also put off maybe putting your legacy in the written word, writing a book, uh, starting a podcast, then I highly encourage you check out James's workshop that he does every Saturday morning with his partner, Allegra Houston. It's called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And you can join him at noon Eastern time on Saturdays. Just hop onto his website, imaginativestorm.com, and check out the Zoom link there. Just click on it. You can join a group of writers who have different prompts throughout the week to you know, improve their creativity and brainstorm and become better creative writers. And this can help you maybe tip the scale on that book project you've been meaning to do to really solidify your legacy with a book um, maybe at the end of your career, middle of your career, or beginning, like I did. I would highly recommend you check out that episode. Please take a deep breath before listening to this episode. Calm your mind and let James and I's conversation speak poetry 
into your life today, no matter the circumstances that you may be in right now. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where I, a Gen Zer, dissect collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or one that's paid to pester you like a fly in your ear, you won't survive. Let's change that today. This is a very unique and special episode of this show. You're going to hear a discussion between myself and James about the power of the spoken, written, and the sung word. And uh, you might just hear me singing later in this episode, so definitely stay tuned for that. You have to tell me how it is, and who knows, I might do it on future episodes. But I'm excited today to introduce you to James. He's such an incredible human being. Let me tell you a little bit about him. James has presented well over 10,000 shows and workshops as a poet, a teacher, and a storyteller. And he's performed all across the world, from Ireland to Bangkok to Lima and all across the U.S. If you're tempted to turn off today's episode or maybe skip to the next one, if you're a business owner or an HR executive, I encourage you to not. Because today's episode will be one of the most relaxing, metaphorical, and deep discussions you're going to hear in a long time. Because we talk about language and how it's evolved over the years. But here's the thing. Later in the episode, we also discuss what is poetry to Generation Z? And if you're a leader, for example, or a business owner, and you neglect to understand the power of the creativity and artistic expression that Gen Z craves to engage us at work. You need to listen to the end of this episode where James and I dissect what it means to employ the power of creativity in your work environments. And don't miss my solo cast on Friday of this week, where we dissect exactly how you can put creativity, embed it into your culture, and use it in your team meetings to engage all different generations. If you are someone who has also put off maybe putting your legacy in the written word, writing a book, uh, starting a podcast, then I highly encourage you check out James's workshop that he does every Saturday morning with his partner, Allegra Houston. It's called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And you can join him at noon Eastern time on Saturdays. Just hop onto his website, imaginativestorm.com, and check out the Zoom link there. Just click on it. You can join a group of writers who have different prompts throughout the week to you know, improve their creativity and brainstorm and become better creative writers. And this can help you maybe tip the scale on that book project you've been meaning to do to really solidify your legacy with a book, um, maybe at the end of your career, middle of your career, or beginning like I did. I would highly recommend you check out that episode. Please take a deep breath before listening to this episode. 
calm your mind, and let James and I's conversation speak poetry into your life today, no matter the circumstances that you may be in right now. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where I, a Gen Zer, dissect collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or one that's paid to pester you like a fly in your ear, you won't survive. Let's change that today. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Overture Consulting. If you're a leader or a business owner in a mid-sized company and you want to improve retention and recruitment of employees under age 30, be sure to sign up for our free masterclass held on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, where we give you tactical strategies to make you a top native digital employer. You can register for that at hannahgwilliams.com forward slash get that shit. And now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing James Nave. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for inviting me to come on the show. I appreciate, appreciate this time with you. I am looking forward to it and well, and hearing your voice for an hour because every time I hear it, it just calms my soul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Let's, let's begin getting your soul all calmed down. Yes. Can you say some sort of ritual or something to, (laughs) cause this week I tell you, I need, I need calming. So I can give you something ritualistic, if you will. It's a poetic line that comes from a poem titled Lonesome Pine Special by Charles Wright. It's a very long poem written years ago about landscapes traveling around America and finding the different nuances of of the landscapes. And in the landscape, of course, you have people, and the people are doing whatever the business they happen to be doing, whatever that business is. So the line in the, the poem goes like this. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you? At odd moments, when something is given back you didn't know you had had, in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had, in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy? And Charles Wright offers us that line because we are moving around the world. We are traveling in landscapes, traveling in time, traveling inside our imaginations and also outside of our imaginations. So when he asks that question, what is it inside your imagination that surprises you? He's inviting all of us to look out on our own landscapes, all of those vast horizons that we look forward to finding and asking that question, what will surprise me in the next moment. So that is something that is a very interesting question for me. That is beautiful. That is, that's, well, it's a beautiful line, but it's also a beautiful message. And I, I actually live, James, I know we're states and states apart, but one of my favorite places to go in 
the near proximity to where I live is the home of Carl Sandburg, who of course was a very famous poet and probably the most famous from right here in Asheville. And he has this beautiful farm and it has, you know, they, they still have farm animals on it, goats and chickens and all that. And there's parks and areas that you can walk around his home. But I feel a sense of just absolute calm come over me every time I go to his home and see his poetry written. All They have it all over the walls of his farmhouse. And um, anyway, lots of stories coming from there. But it's it's so relaxing to speak with someone. How, how many poems have you memorized? I've memorized over 200. No, I'm sorry, 600, maybe more. I don't know how many. You could ask me how many I've forgotten, because that's <laughs> essential. Because one of the things about memorization, you think when you memorize something, you're going to remember it forever. And in fact, you do, because somewhere in your body, it's stored. That said, recalling it is another thing. So in order to recall a piece, like I was able to recall the piece that I just read for you or recited for you, I've kept it in the foreground. So when we memorize things, when we use them, they stay in the foreground and serve us and speak with us, really. And then when you don't use it, it, it kind of goes away, but it goes not away in the sense of away outside of your body. It goes away down into some part of your body. And then when you come back to it years later, you can bring it back and have it back again. So I have 600. I probably have 50 maybe that I can pull full tilt out whenever I please. And then a fair amount of remnants. And I do, I, you know, I have to say, I used to know a number of Carl Sandburg's poems. And I have been more than once to the Carl Sandburg house out there in Flat Rock, just past the Flat Rock Playhouse, on the way to the old Saluda Grade, which nobody you know ever exactly goes down. About. Yeah, <laughs> never goes down, and there are goats out there, and all kinds of animals, and and whatnot, and and even in the poem that Charles Wright uh, offered us, called Lonesome Pine Specialist, I think it. Let's see, the line goes, just south of Tryon, North Carolina, going down the old Saluda Grade. Kudzu has grown up and over the tops of miles of oak trees and pine trees. A wall of vines a hundred feet high are used to be going into South Carolina that would have gone a hundred more with the right scaffolding, crawling out of the rocks and hard clay and thin prickly ropes to snake and thread in daily measurable distances over anything still enough, long enough. And when you go to Carl Sandburg's place... Everything is still and quiet and very poetic. And he was also the, the, the poet who talked about the muscles of Chicago. And he's a Chicago poet. He comes out of Chicago. And my good buddy Mark Smith, who started the Poetry Slam years ago, has in some ways taken over the idea of being the Chicago poet. So Mark is now supposedly in Carl Sandburg's place, but I don't think he's fully taken taken over the role, even though Sandburg did move south down to Carolina. Well, and what is fascinating about Carl Sandburg's story to me, and I forget the exact age, you might know better than me, he didn't start writing poetry or at least become famous for his poetry until he was in his 50s, I believe. Do you know? I don't know exactly when he started to get notice. I will say that most poets 
even maybe notable authors, they get some notice early in the game. And occasionally it happens. My friend Ocean Vuong, who's maybe 31 now. I met Ocean when he was 19. He did an open reading at Bar 13, uh, the latter arts venue in New York University and in, in, um, University in 13th, Bar 13. That's why they call it 13. And he walked in, this slight Vietnamese fellow, and, may I read, may I read my work? And the woman who was running the show, Lynn Prokop, said, absolutely, I'll put you on the list. It was an open mic. And he stepped up to the mic in the quiet voice that one would not expect in a venue full of slam poets, all of whom were champions that could bring 2,000 people to to their feet in 30 minutes. This guy walks up on the stage and he whispers into the mic in the quietest voice he could possibly whisper. Didn't look up much. And I know, Hannah, that you are a public speaker and I've seen some of your videos and you really know how to be on a stage and, and be present. You could stand there for five minutes and not say anything and people would just wait, you know, with great anticipation to see what would happen next. Ocean did the same thing, but he did it with a quiet voice. And he read these fabulous pieces, 21, 22 years old. And afterwards, the whole room exploded in applause. Oh, my God. God, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then one fellow from the back, who was one of the big slam champions, yelled, Okay, all right, we get it. We know you're good. And um, later that night, I walked up to Ocean and said, Hi, I'm James Nave. My friends call me Nave, and I just wanted to say I've been around a long time, and I think I'm going to take a chance here, uh, Ocean. I'm going to say you will be one of America's major, major, major poets in the the future sometime. Guy looked up at me, he smiled and said, thank you so much for your support. And last year he won the MacArthur Award as one of America's major, major poets. And he made it before he's 31, 32. You know, you watch, you see Ocean on the TV and this and that. And the New Yorker wrote... He was in the New Yorker. His poetry book won um, the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. So at 30 years old, Ocean has made it. Now, has he, the way our culture measures, made it? He's on the Poet and Writers magazine cover. The New Yorker is saying, bravo, Ocean Vuong. He goes to NYU, gets his master's degree. NYU says, we're thankful Ocean chose us. This guy has momentum. He's 32 years old, and he is just beginning to find out what it means to be in that arena we call poetry, that arena that's been around for thousands of years. So Ocean will tell you, I am just a beginner in this. So imagine where he will be 30 years from now when he matures. So Absolutely. This is a fascinating topic to me, too, because when I think about poetry as a Gen Zer, to me, it seems like most of modern day poetry is song lyrics, right? It seems to me, looking at the entire landscape of how art and creativity has changed, I think, wow, is poetry just the true writing of just poems? Is that still a thing. And when I see song lyrics and these amazing writers, I mean, some of my favorite artists, uh, 21 Pilots, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a, uh, they fall on the line of like 
they, they have some pop, some rock influences, but also some alternative, and their lyrics are out of this world amazing. Anyway, it begs the question, what what is the now and the future of poetry? Well, Hannah, I'm glad you asked that because it's a question I can't answer. I can explore it with you, Fair though. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what is James what the, Nave's opinion on the future of poetry? <laughs> well, you, the, the, to expand that question out just a little bit beyond the future of poetry, let's look at the future of language because poetry is part of, of language. And when you think of poetry straight out of the gate, you're thinking of things that you've heard in the past. You might reference things you studied in school. You just reference song lyrics. For example, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell, they, they'll banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the live long day to an admiring bog. Now, I chose that because Emily Dickinson wrote it, and she's considered one of the great American poets who has influenced the genre along the way. So where is poetry going? Song lyrics? Do they qualify as poetry? I think Dylan, uh, Bob Dylan might, uh, might agree that they do. So when we talk about the way people are exploring language usage and the way they're putting it down on paper or in songs, each one of those methods of presenting the artifact is a delivery system. So the pawns can be on the page, the pawns could be in a song. A lot of these characters, and I love to do this too, they sit around with mics and just start like throwing stuff out on the wall and throw it and throw it and throw it and throw it and they know they will have a body to work with, a, 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 I want to say a body of work, but a, a body of opportunity to create perhaps a song. So they put the lyrics, they put the music, and they do the improvisational work for the energy. And then at some point, these people will sit down and capture all that and then create some sort of structure, put it together in a form, add music to it, and off it goes. And then you call it a song. And you say, well, I always think of poetry as songs. But when you take the, uh, the music out of it and you look at the text, you can see the poetic beats in it. Now, you know, you could say whose woods these are. I think I know his house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. I just did a little rhymy bit there. Or you could do it this way. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village. Though he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Well, my little horse, well, it must think it's queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Beyond the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. So I switched out of the rhymy songy part, moved into the storytelling part, and didn't punch the rhymes. So when you listen to all the music that's coming out, you have really skilled people with super talent who do nothing but sit around and think about how they're going to craft all this stuff. And not, not only do they sit around and think about it, they actually do it. And they do it collaboratively. Now when you put your mind in that direction with a bunch of talented people 
who are all committed to language, you're going to get yourself some really interesting material. And then the more they do it, the easier it is. So you can even see some of these people just step on stage, pick up their music, their instruments, and off they go. And they make it up as they go along. And people will sit in the audience and think, how do they do that? And if you go backstage in the green room and say, well, how did you do that? They say, well, we've been doing it for 15 years. Why wouldn't we be able to do it? So poetry, it is part of language usage and language evolution and language exploration. So that's why it's a very important idea to think about yourself as a poetic entity. The language you use is naturally poetic, no matter who you are, no matter how complicated or simple it is. Well, and essentially what I'm hearing you say is that poetry was possibly an expression of language at the time when it was created and and now it's it's morphed into something like song. I mean, it's song has been around for for decades and decades. So poetry, song, theater, any any type of art form you put out there with the use of words is a form of poetry and a form of helping language evolve. Is would I would I be correct in saying that? I would say that's fair, and I would also say that the songs come bef- became long before the poetry. I mean, what we've done in this culture is we've somehow decided that we're going to do a codified approach to language that we call poetry. And I'm not disrespecting any of it. I mean, to create a really well-constructed poem that requires the listener to lean into it, that stimulates the listener, the reader, really, we call them, or listener. I say listener because so many people hear it from a spoken word point of view. It stimulates the, the people and then to create it so that it sounds simple and yet it's complicated at the same time it's simple and yet it's layered that's that takes a lot of skill so poetry as we know it from the western point of view when it's done well has great power because the people who do it practice their syllables they practice the rhymes so you don't hear them they Put the syllables together in ways that will create emotional tones inside your psychology that you don't even even know about. And then at some point, people get so easy with it. It's like jazz players. They are, they're doing highly structured stuff without seeming to spend too much effort. But it's still, it's still very structured. So the poetry that we know that we call poetry is certainly strong, strong stuff. That said, you can go into any culture and you will see the people in the culture doing something similar to that and creating forms with language that will match the way their cultural take on the world works. And I wish I knew more about the the different kinds of poetic impulses and poetic offerings that other cultures make. I know that some of the griots in West Africa the will train from the time they're little children. They come up through the same family and they're trained to memorize and remember the entire history back three, four, five hundred years of an entire village. All the dates, all the birthdays, everything, like they're walking encyclopedias. That's a poet 
poetry sort of that's that's poetry in a different kind of way so i always encourage anybody that ever stops me on the corner they'll say hey no you know tell me a little bit about poetry like you did i encourage people to pull back and allow themselves to think of poetry and the way they view the world in in a broad way so if you're in the sunrise and you're warming and you're seeing the beautiful little wisp of clouds and the crow flies by and the blue emerges out of the the morning and you go oh. yeah that's your poetic impulse fascinating well and the the idea that poetry is different from culture to culture from time to time from generation to generation has always been something I've loved to study. And it, it you brought me back to a time in my life back in middle and high school. And my, my parents, I don't know how many parents do this, but they would enter my siblings and I in pretty much every poetry competition they could find. We memorized Shakespeare. We memorized, you know, we were in theater, very actively involved in theater. I, I actually played I played Belle in Beauty and the Beast years ago, and it was a blast, but I don't get to sing that much anymore. And it's for, maybe I'll just sing on the podcast sometime just so I have an, I have an outlet to sing. Um, it's, it's a part of me that I miss a lot. But the point being that I think it's interesting how much, you know, in school when we're younger, we memorize, and then how much, at least I, have either forgotten for the past few years or how little I have to memorize now. And as a Gen Zer too, you know, I'm, um, I, Google is my best friend. And, you know, you'll ask any Gen Zer, well, what's the point of memorizing something if you can just Google it? And so to my generation, seeing something like a song or hearing poetry in a song is a really easy way to capture and memorize it. I, I can't think of, you know, a, a friend recently I've talked to who, who has said, I've memorized a poem, but they know hundreds and hundreds of songs. And so um, anyway, I, I think that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Bob Dylan and his poetry. And I, I happen to love Bob Dylan. I love any music from that genre. And in fact, have you heard um, the, the new recording? Actually, it's a few years old now, but Simon and Garfunkel's Sound, uh, Sound of Silence was re-recorded by Disturbed, which is a heavy metal group, a few years ago. And I think their version is even more beautiful than Simon and Garfunkel's. Have you heard it? You know, a theme, I think I have heard it, but I can't recall it right off. But I do think somebody mentioned that, and I do think I listened to it. And when you think about these heavy metal bands, I'm not a heavy metal fan necessarily. In order to pull out that much energy and still keep it musical requires a great deal deal of skill. So I imagine the sounds of silence would be remarkable in the hands of a band like that, I would think. It is beautiful. And what's interesting to me is that the lead of Disturbed sings, you know, he sings heavy metal and, and, you know, with that throaty guttural voice. And then he sings this song. It's like the 10th song on the album. And he has this beautiful baritone, like rich voice. Just look it up and you'll be chilled. Like listen to the song before it that is complete screamo heavy metal. And then you listen to this and it's like the whole world shifts. 
And it, I had the same experience. So t speaking of modern day poets who are also um, just songwriters, Billie Eilish is, you know, huge for my generation. But one of her songs is called I Don't Want to Be You Anymore. And, every, you know, people kind of sing it or whatever. If you look at the lyrics, just listen to these. I, I adore this song. But the chorus goes, if teardrops could be bottled, there'd be swimming pools filled by models. Told a tight dress is what makes you a whore. If I love you was a promise, would you break it if you're honest? Tell the mirror what you know she's heard before. I don't want to be you anymore. It's like it's poetry in a chorus. Say it again, just so I can take it in. I love to hear these things more than once. Well, how would I sing it? <laughs> this, would, this would be the well, only I'm, episode I'm, I ever I would, sing. <laughs> well, why don't you sing it, Hannah? Why don't you go ahead and sing it? And then we can talk about what singing is, because singing is something that I've always been curious about. So let's hear you sing it. And I, yeah, my, I'll have to tell you a different story of how I even got into this. But um, this chorus goes, If teardrops could be bottled, there'd be swimming pools filled by models. Told a tight dress is what makes you a whore. If I love you was a promise, would you break it if you're honest? Tell the mirror what you know she's heard before. I don't wanna be you anymore. Mm. Isn't that gorgeous? Just like those lyrics? He, because you don't realize until the end or at least it, it, she's she's singing to herself i don't want to be you anymore yes so it sneaks sneaks up and the writing sneaks up on you a bit and then you get oh god she's looking at the mirror and you know that was beautiful also that your voice was lovely and you Thank carried you. the tune rather well so it sounds like you've done this before so if you want to give up your your podcast conversations and just sing a while i think people will be happy <laughs> with that no problem <laughs> Maybe I'll do a solo cast and I'll just I'll just sing the whole time. <laughs> well, when you take a bit of lyrics like that, and and she, Billie Eilish, is really quite a powerful force because she was able to manage for reasons that I don't really know how because she would know these not not I wouldn't know them. She's been doing this a long time. Admittedly, she's not that old. I don't know what is she twenty. Two, she actually, maybe? when she came out with her first album, she was six, uh, 15 or 16. I want to say she just turned 20. She does a thing on Vanity Fair, which is each year she does a report on Billie Eilish at 19, at 20. I haven't watched the one that she did this year, but I know it's up there right now. So you take somebody like, like Billie Eilish, who has enough confidence to start something, enough talent to be able to track it, and enough green lights in her life to let her run it. And then she gets the wave, which is to say the attention, and enough, uh, she has enough wherewithal to keep doing it. So all this woman has been doing for the last 
seven years, probably before she came onto the scene. She's probably been like banging a spoon since she was two. Who knows? And she's now had all of this practice and now it's her job. And so she has the, like Ocean Vong, she has the opportunity to sit down and really work that craft. And imagine where she will be in 30 or 40 years. So true. I mean, she's already set so many records for age and, you know, number of Grammys and all of those things. But what I think is so interesting about her and her style of writing, which is probably the reason that her type of poetry speaks so well to my generation, is she is brutally authentic with it to the point of abrasiveness in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And she tells her not just her story of a vision of the future, which you hear from at least when I read a lot of poetry, it seems to me it's, you know, taking you to a different place, which is helpful in certain times. What Billy has done is she, her poetry is very much in the moment. What are you dealing with? What's the shit happening in your life right now that you need to just get out? And so her songs have become this anthem for my generation to say, you know, take this example of, I don't want to be you anymore. It's literally it is she she's staring at herself in the mirror singing to herself what is you know what is the problem with you why do you speaking to i why do i see myself this way and i that's such such a, a resonating message with my generation and when she looks in the mirror and she says i don't want to be you anymore the there's an absence after it and of course, the absence fills in with the question, well, what do you want to be? Who are you now? Who will you be? Who will you be later? And the other thing that I like about her work and other people who do this, you said that she is so honest that it becomes abrasive or she's so honest that it, it's almost abrasive. You didn't say it was it's almost so the difference, in my view, of what makes me register work as art versus like self-effacing sort of ridiculous, you know, stuff that rolls off that's shocking, the artist knows when to stop. To, the artist knows how much sandpaper to rub over the skin to get you to notice a little abrasion so that you remember the message, but not so much abrasion that your arm gets infected. And how do you accomplish that? It's a rhetorical question. We can't answer it. That's what makes the difference between you listening to Billie Eilish and maybe somebody else that's equally as skilled, but doesn't quite catch that atmosphere. Hmm. Well, and this is the reason that I think it's so fascinating that, you know, different messages or different ways of whether it's poetry or song or even writing that speaks to different people. And you brought this up last time we were talking and I wanted to ask you more about it. So you said that you, that the artist way, so Julia Cameron, um, her book was blowing up on TikTok, and I didn't realize that at the time. I hadn't see it, seen it on my For You page, but I did a little research afterwards, and I found, sure enough, hundreds of videos of this book that Julia Cameron wrote how many years ago? 
It's been a couple decades, right? It was 1990, I think, when it was published, or 89. So take something 20, 30 years old, and it's it's having this, you know, reemergence with my generation in, in terms of its popularity. So why do you think the artist's way or that book has reemerged for my generation? I'm assuming it was popular back when she first released it, but like what has happened? What, what about that story, that book, that practice is so resonating? Well, that practice of with the artist way may tie into who, to the songwriting and what Billie Eilish is doing and all the rest of these fabulous people that are out there in the arena right now, young and old. The way I understand the artist way, Julia was working as a journalist in the 70s and the 80s, and she was a successful journalist. She had written screenplays for television, novels, on and on it went. And she she was, and this is public knowledge, she was getting sober. She had found her way into this Studio 13 scene. Uh, what it was? Studio 74? Was it 74? Studio... Oh my goodness! I'm. I can't remember. <laughs> I should know this. It was the studio something and studio and the set, some number. Studio some number. It was very famous. Andy Warhol and all these characters hung out there. Anyway, it was a raucous time, and they were all a bit uh, on the on the wild side. So Julia decided to clean her act up, and when she did, she decided to teach creativity workshops because she had been doing all sorts of work with the Rolling Stone magazine, and people were coming to her because she was the editor for the Rolling Stone. Not the editor. She was the uh, entertainment editor, I believe. And so folks who were trying to make it in New York in the 70s would come to her and say, can you write an article for me? She would. Some of these people became household names and still are to this day household names. So somewhere along the way, she thought, wow, I could teach creativity because my creative vibe is growing much more now because I'm not drinking, I'm sober, I'm engaging my work. So she started teaching the creativity workshops. And within the context of these workshops, divided into 12 weeks, she would write essays and things for the folks at the for the each week. And at the end of the week, she would give the the chapters out for the next week. They would go home, do the chapters, come back, etc. Somehow it all got managed to be put into a little pamphlet. That little pamphlet turned into a book. The little book was picked up by a publisher, a Jeremy Tarcher, and off it went. It was published, and people started to buy it. And actors and writers and people in the arts started to read it. It's the artist's way, a, a, a spiritual guide to, to, to creative recovery. And so it took off. And it was helpful, and it worked, and folks really liked it. And it's already, it's always been in the culture, and it's always been very popular in the culture of people who do the artist work, like, like I say, photographers, screenwriters, movie makers, this, that, and the other. It never stopped, and the reason it was popular was because people would buy two or three copies, give it away for Christmas, and Julia did something that very few people have ever done. She said, "Take the book." And if you feel like teaching it, go ahead and teach it. You don't need my approval. You don't need training. Just do it. And if you want to charge for it, charge for it. It doesn't matter. So in, in 1995, when I met Julia and we started teaching Artist Way Creativity Camps in Taos, and we did it for six years, the book was very popular. So we had easy time getting people to come. And I started to learn the stories I started to hear the questions people were asking about, why have I not gone as far as I could go? How come I didn't do what I wanted to do? 
why did I turn around and go back? One of the things I like about you, Hannah, you you obviously don't really understand the idea of turning around and going back. I don't know you well, but the sense is you are just going forward and you have a mission and you're delivering your message and people are saying, I love that message. I'm going to listen more. So you're looking forward all the time. A lot of the people who came to the Artist Way classes, they didn't know how to look forward like that. They didn't have the confidence to do it or whatever. And so I learned really quickly people really need encouragement. They need to be need to be have champions around them. They need to have enthusiasm around them. They need to have believing mirrors around them. They need, they need people who will say, yeah, this is really good. And they also need to know need to have people around who can critique. So there's two kinds of criticism, the horrible, terrible, nasty-ass criticism that destroys people. And then there's the wonderful criticism given to people who want to do something more. Like podcasts, you would take advice from people who do podcasts. If someone comes along and says, hey, Hannah, I've got a, got a tip on a great mic, you would go, yeah, tell me all about it. And then they might even give you a few tips on how to breathe and how to, how to put your word out in a better way through the mic. So that would be good criticism. So we all thrive when we get that kind of motivation. When we don't get it, we feel like the sharks have turned on us. We feel like the, the spiders are after us. The rattlesnakes are coming. Pick any creature. No, no problem with sharks, spiders, or rattlesnakes unless they're chasing me, and then I do have a problem with it. And so now, why would this culture right now, why would the artist way blow up on TikTok and Instagram and lots of other places? I saw Julia's has an article in the New Yorker t- this week. Last week it was The Guardian. The week before that it was another big publication. So she's all over the place right now. On the radio, I hear her on WNYC, interviewed. She and uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, and Love, a Love, do podcasts together. Elizabeth Gilbert said, if it weren't for the artist way, Eat, Pray, and Love would never exist. Uh, Alicia you know, Keys wanna, says, yay for the artist way. I this for a second because I have, I have to say this. I didn't know Elizabeth Gilbert's name was going to come up, but... Did you, I haven't told you this before. Elizabeth Gilbert is the reason I'm pretty much doing everything I'm doing now. Really? No kidding. <laughs> she is, I, I obviously, I don't, I didn't know Elizabeth Gilbert very well, even her work before I saw her speak at a conference. It was the inbound conference a few years back in Boston And I saw her speak. I didn't know much about her. I had not read Eat, Pray, Love or seen the Netflix um, show on it or anything. And she came out on stage and she said something to me that has completely, or said something to the audience, I was in the audience, that has completely changed the course of everything. And I imagine if I read The Artist's Way, there would be some similar takeaways. But this is what she said. She, She said that when she was first becoming a writer... She moved to New York with, you know, big aspirations, but few tactics. And she was living at the time with five or six roommates because rent was so expensive, right? Mm -hmm. Well, every day she would look across the way from her apartment at this, the home of a famous writer who is her hero and her inspiration. She didn't know her, but she would look across the way and she would see the life that this woman would live. And she would imagine herself as if she had already achieved this. 
Well, one day she happened to come across this mentor in the street or at a party or something. I don't remember exactly how the story played out, but her mentor started getting to know her and asked her this pointed question one day. She said, Elizabeth, what would you have to give up in order to achieve the dream you pretend you have? And that just struck me because, right, she Elizabeth was pretending she had this. And, and her first mechanism was just complete defensiveness, right? Her first was like, oh, well, I'm here in New York and I'm working my ass off to get this, you know, my my book written and I'm working my tail off to, to pay the bills. But essentially what she stopped for a moment and told herself was, you know what? I am living in a house full of people where I can't concentrate. I'm working a job that doesn't allow me to focus. I am watching Netflix or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> I'm watching movies every, you know, every few days with my friends and I'm using all these excuses to get in the way of my goal of being a writer. And that quote when she said that on stage, I t- I asked myself the same question and that was 2 years ago. And it's that is the reason I am as far as I am into my journey as a business owner and, and a coach and, and all of these things. So anyway, I just had to say that because that she's been such an inspiration for me. You were describing the creative champion. She was being the creative champion for many people in the audience, including you. And so that's, that's what we can do for each other when we are engaged in this kind of work. Elizabeth Gilbert did read The Artist Way. We know that. Julia Cameron read something that led her to The Artist Way, to write The Artist Way. And now we come around to how many people in the TikTok audience, how many people on Instagram, the audience, um, and wherever else we can disseminate these messages, how many people are out there? There are millions and millions of people out there. And I think the reason why those folks are listening and responding to Julia's work, because they wanted to hear what you heard. And they want someone to offer a little bit of friendly encouragement to say, yeah, whatever you're thinking right now, you can start to make it happen. You well, can't make it happen artists, all at once. Right? No, no, no. We're talking right, about, everybody. I'm talking about human beings because we talk about art and here we are back to the, the, the poetic thing of, oh, you know, if you don't write the American version of the poem with the right syntax and all the syllables in place is not a poem. We are talking, and so when we talk about art in this culture, we, we talk about, oh my gosh, the visual artist who painted the great painting and it was, was collected, or the photographer who gets the, the wonderful contract, or the, the writer, or whatever it is, the singer who makes it to Carnegie Hall, et cetera, et cetera. All of those validations of art are legitimate up to a point, but they're so commercialized, they're so offered to us in... Uh, sanitized frames when the real action the real action happens when you wake up in the morning and you do whatever you're you're called to do and you make things because at the end of the day we're all makers and we're all making things we're making families we're making meals we're making businesses we're making our way or trying to 
we are dealing with all kinds of obstacles. COVID-19 rolls around. Could there be a more dramatic obstacle for all of us? We all have that in common now. We, we are makers. And when I think of creativity, I think of creativity not as something that's exclusive to a few creative people over in this little corner. Creativity is something we, that we were, were born into. It's what makes the whole universe function. There's so much of it, it sometimes confuses us. What we are talking about is organization. How do we fit ourselves into this? How do I hear Elizabeth Gilbert say something to me, and then I go forward and take it into something that I make something out of? Sometimes we call it art, sometimes we don't. But I believe the impulse to make things, we could fairly call artistic impulse, no matter how it's expressed, even ironing a pair of trousers. All, all artistic expression. It's what keeps us alive, too, as well. I completely, completely agree. And it's so easy when we get caught up in the day-to-day of whether it's working as, you know, in in a completely quote-unquote non-creative field, that it's easy to lose sight of this, this beauty. And I've seen this in my own home recently. I, so my husband is an analyst and he spends all of his day in Excel spreadsheets. That's what he does. But at his, like the core of his being, he's an artist and he used to draw and paint and all of these things. Well, Recently, we've taken on the project of uh, starting, um, renovating an Airbnb, a house for Airbnb, and it's a hundred year old home and we've got all these plans for it. But I watched my husband wake up in the mornings so excited about coming into the living room and picking out the color scheme or looking at the way light falls on certain colors. And he, I swear he's been to Sherwin-Williams 10 times this week <laughs> to look at the, get the little color swabs. The guy, the poor guy at the counter felt so sorry for him. He just handed him one of those big like commercial uh, color banks and just said, here, you know, here you go, stop coming in. <laughs> so, um... But anyway, the point being, we get starved for that creative side of us. I don't think it matters how left-brained we are. There's some innate part of being human that calls us to design and create and and to, you know, bring forth other life and to bring joy and and creativity and Something I loved this week when I was looking at the impact of the artist's way and just creativity in general on my generation. One thing I noticed is there were there were lots of videos on TikTok and Instagram about people who struggle with ADHD and anxiety using the tools in the artist's way to help them cope with that. So just the practical tip of, for example, having three a time in the morning to write three pages of stream of consciousness and just get out the the emotions, the feeling to create something in the mornings helped them structure their day so much better. So what what would you say to a a CEO, a manager, a, a busy executive or someone who's just running around, they think they have no time for creativity, what would you what would you say to help them like unlock that part of, of their own creative potential. First of all, the busy executive has to ask the question, can you give me some advice on how I could unlock my creativity? 
I would never assume because somebody's busy doing their executive work, they have any sort of creative restrictions. I would assume the opposite. I would assume they're going full tilt in their creative lives, building a business, running an operation. And I did want to say something before I move into what we would say to somebody when they ask that question. Every job on earth, somebody loves it. Somebody thrives in it. It doesn't matter what it is. Even the even the worst job you can imagine, there's some character somewhere that says, I just love getting up in the morning and doing this or doing that or whatever it is that they, they do that everybody else thinks, oh, God, I, I wouldn't really want to do that. And you can pick any job that you think might be one you wouldn't want to do. And you know there are people that love it. So the question is more about how we as human beings can find our way into situations that we can fall in love with. We're talking about falling in love with ourselves, falling in love with what we do. And the job or the work is not the problem. It's the choice we make to go into that work. So, for example, I really don't think I would enjoy doing work in a piecemeal way in a room all by myself, day after day, with no sound. If I had a podcast or something, I might be able to be happy with my little routine of doing the same thing over and over. So I would not be very happy just doing the same thing over and over again because my attention span is short. So I like to go from one thing to the next to the next. But there are, other, there are people in the world who will sit forever. Your husband, he loves spreadsheets. He's probably sitting there. He probably enjoys them. Maybe there's too much pressure. Who knows? But one of the things I know about him, and I don't know him, I've never met him, he loves organization. What is he doing down at Sherwin-Williams? He's getting paint so he can organize a spreadsheet that now looks like an Airbnb. It has all the same organization that a spreadsheet would. So when a CEO, somebody that's very powerful in the top game, ask that they first have to ask the question, okay, what if I took up the jazz piano I used to play jazz when I was in college. In fact, I was really good. I played, I played, I had a jazz band when I was at Yale, getting my MBA. And after that, I, I even played a little bit while I was becoming a lawyer. Now I'm a lawyer and an MBA, and I'm running like a billion-dollar company, and I don't ever play jazz anymore. But I used to do it. If you can get a CEO to say that, the question would be, well, if you went back to playing jazz... How would that rearrange the way you think so that when the next opportunity emerges, your jazz chops are up to par so you can play the big deal song in a way that harmonizes with all those listening and they pick up their pens and join the band, which is a way of saying they make the deal. Now That would be how I would frame one art form for a CEO. So... Framing the creativity work within the context of whatever the CEO's working with and then adding the benefit of get the people to pick up the pens and join the band and the deal is done and the audience cheers and the stockholders are happy. Well, and people love to, lead, to be led by someone who can understand the creative part of who they are as people, mm -hmm. right? Like right. if you have a leader who is essentially one dimensional and they're always focused on the bottom line and strategic goals and, you know, visioning, well, that's, 
that's great to some extent, but there's this part of this, I mean, what you did for me at the beginning of this recording when we pressed play and just your the calming voice, the ability to unlock an emotion that you cannot get without the use of words, the use of of tones and emotions. That that doesn't happen. You you're not portraying your fullest self or being someone that people relate to if you don't unlock that creative potential that you have. That's quite true. And when you're doing creative work, and we're talking now more about the classic creative work, like the, the jazz playing, if the person loved to play the, the piano, or say, for example, if somebody w loves photography and they start just shooting photos just because they can, and suddenly their work becomes more and more intriguing to them, the way they frame the, the picture, do you put the image in the center or do you give it a, a, a place on the side? How do you frame things? How do you tell a story? Or maybe the CEO starts to write. Perhaps they even start listening to, to poetry and they realize they don't want to be the marginalized human being. They want to be fully realized. Maybe the CEO has done this massive, tremendous stuff and they're at the top of the heap. And the CEO says, is that all there is? And the answer is, I don't know. Even though everybody thinks the, the top of Everest has been reached. So we, we all are in this together. And that's a cliche in some ways, but how could we not be? And when people start to discount their creativity... Oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body. I've never been creative. That's when I say, well, there's no such thing as a person who's not creative because if you weren't creative, you would be dead. You can't survive and not be creative. The question isn't, are you creative or not? The question is, how do you take the abundance that you have right in front of you and employ it in, in, the, in the ways that you choose to employ it? Maybe you do it because you're, you're called to do it. Maybe you do it because you have to pay the bills and put your children through school. And I will, Hannah, we also have to acknowledge there are a hell of a lot of people out there who have to put their children through school. There are a hell of a lot of people out there who might not have that extra five bucks to fill up the gas tank. They, they might have to polish those shoes that they wish they could throw away. They might have to comfort, and they do have to comfort, not might have to. They do have to comfort their their, their husbands, their wives. There's a lot of rough-ass stuff going on in the world. This is not the rosiest place we've ever lived in. So when I talk about these ideals, and when we discuss the things that we're really lucky to be able to talk about, it's important, I think, to remember the the tough stuff. And even though things are tough, even though things are tough for, for people, and I've had tough times, you maybe have too. I don't know you that well, but I'm sure you have. How could you not? That may be the time when we can take a breath and say, okay, let me just stop for a minute. There's got to be a little beauty around me. Even though this is the worst thing I think I've ever experienced, there's got to be a little beauty around me. You know, and the young people who are on TikTok, they're dealing with stuff like what the hell is going to happen in the next 20 years. You, Hannah, will be the one who helps form the answers to that question. So 
I say all of that just so you and I both know and you know that I am aware of that side too. Absolutely. Well, and, and that exists for any generation, right? We're all thinking what's, what's to come, what's next. And I think many, especially, you know, folks from your generation, my parents' generation who are looking back on their life are also asking the question, how do I immortalize what I've done and leave a legacy for my kids to see and my grandkids? And I actually, I spoke with two CEOs this week who said they were considering writing a book to immortalize their legacy. And, and so, but, but of course, you know, they, what you just said a second ago about, you know, I don't have a creative bone to my body. That's the type of fear that's holding them back from moving forward. And so what would you say to someone who is at the end of their career and they're saying, you know, I, I want to look back on my life and say, you know, I've done something. I want to share my story and my family's story with the future generations in whether it's our family or, you know, I, I want to create a legacy, but I don't feel like I can unlock that potential in myself to write or to, to put this down on paper. What, what would you say to them? I'm losing a little bit of the vocal with you right now. Oh, no. Can you hear me now? Yeah, great. Okay. Put it down on paper, put it down on paper. Yes. How can, if, if a, an executive is saying, or you know, anyone who's at the end of their career is saying, I want to put down my legacy on paper, but I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm, I can't unlock that writing potential in me. What would you say? Well, first of all, I would ask the person I'm speaking with, why they felt like that was important. I would ask them, is it a legacy that you're curious about? Or is this a gift that you would like to make to give to somebody and let them declare it a legacy? I would also encourage them or inquire a bit into why they might think writing would be the way to go. Why not a podcast? Why not another way of doing it? Now, I'm a big fan of generating written work, and I, I do manuscript coaching, and get I can get a book out. If somebody wants me to work with them and bring a book up to the point where they can publish it, I can do that. It takes about two years to actually make that happen. So, oh, is that, is that what you see, about two years on average? Uh, yeah, about two years from the time you say, I'd like to do this. And until you actually get it to a, a, a publishing place and you get it out. Now, I mean, you can kick something out in, in, three, in three months or a month. I mean, it's not that you can't do it. But if you really want to like, have the deep experience with this process of bringing something forward into the world that is worthy of, uh, of, of being called a gift, then it does take time. And like I say, it might take less, but usually it's about two years from the start to finish. And that's editing and looking at the text and writing it and redoing it. So there's a lot of craft and, and effort that has to go into making that happen. It's just not something that somebody can sit down and just do because, well, I've decided I'm going to write a book today, so I'll write one. Sure, you can generate the pages. Will somebody else be able to read it? it yes, after you've edited it and gotten it to the place where 
it's easy to read. So creating a legacy is really more about creating an artifact that might be of value to one reader. And if it's valuable to one, it'll be valuable to a whole bunch. And that would be how I would frame a book writing project with a CEO. And I would also frame it around business. If you want to start a business, little coffee shop on the corner, whatever it is, you have to spend six months to a year just figuring out how to do it before you ever even get the doors open. And then once the doors are open, how long does it take? Three years, five years before it happens, really fully becomes established. So writing a book. a creative process too. Oh God, yeah. How could it not be? Like, where am I going to put the sign? You know, how will the menu look? Which one of these machines will I buy? Gee, maybe I need to go to Sherwin-Williams and get Hannah's husband to pick out some colors for me. I mean, I don't know, you know. <laughs> don't star him on that. <laughs> don't, you know, guy's got a new career. You see, so, so it's, it's super, super creative. So the questions that I would ask someone would be more of motivation. Why, why do you want to do it? What makes you think this is something you would like to devote this much time to? And if you probe a little bit, you usually can get the people to answer the question in an authentic, as we started out talking about, authentic way. Gee, you know, I really just want to write this book because I want to understand what happened to me in my life. And I'd like for my son to understand what happened to me, too, because I think it would be important for him to know how I feel about him, the world, and business. So I'm going to write this for my son because I care about him. And in fact, I love him, and I want him to know that. I'm going to write this book for him. And then I might be saying, okay, pick up the pen and go. Well, and I would imagine join some sort of community. I, mean, I, I know that was so helpful when I was writing my book, trying to get through that process of not just writer's block, but just having the sheer motivation to even get through writing 30 minutes a day during that last crunch, there would be weeks that I had no motivation to write anything. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for me, joining a community of people who could help me think through how, you know, how to be consistent and give me encouragement and just even jumping on a, a Zoom or or a phone call or FaceTime for me and just talking to another author was absolutely crucial. And and that's why, you know, when I hear these people talk about, you know, they, they say they want to leave a legacy, but I talk to them two years later and they haven't even started whatever that project is, whether it's a book or a podcast or whatever it is it makes me wonder, you know, what, where's their community? You know, where's, where's their support? Have they sought it out? It's a, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. So, um, I want to, this time has flown, (laughs) James. I, I love every conversation that (laughs) we have so much. Um, I do want to just ask you uh, one final question and pretty much a complete gear shift, but come back to this conversation about poetry and spoken language and the importance of it. What do you believe is something that my generation should know that maybe we forget sometimes? And what, what's something my generation should know about the power of words and language and how it influences the world or, or people at large? What, what's something, what's it, some advice 
you might give us or that you wish you could impart to the next generation on the power of words? Well, what I would say to anybody, no matter how old they are, think back to when you first became aware that you were able to speak. Now, you probably won't remember the first word you uttered. You probably won't remember the first hundred or two hundred, who knows how many words you uttered, but there will be a time when you will remember when you spoke and you remember back to that first remembered utterance and keep in mind that that impulse has been with us since humans have existed. And so when you start to participate in the use of language as a way of letting people know who you are, no matter how old you are, it's, it's you. It's you being you, you being yourself, back to your authenticity that you talked about earlier, that we've talked about. And if you're, when you're, I remember when I was in my 20s, I always thought I was running out of time. It was sort of a dumb ass idea, really. But maybe I was and just didn't know it. And suppose, existentially speaking, we are all running out of time. So if people will just remember that we are participating in the use of language around the globe and the thousands of dialects, thousands of ways that people approach things, thousands of ways that people speak. So every time you say a word, a sentence, every time you reach out to somebody and you make a comment... You're speaking with billions of people doing the same thing at the same time. Imagine how many people are speaking right now and how many languages they're speaking. So we're participating in something that's been going on forever and forever and forever. And yet, the words you speak have never been said before. Brand new in the midst of all of that history. And when you start to realize that what you say every second is brand new, it's never been done before, it's just you, you and you alone, and you are standing there at the top of yourself, being yourself, even when you're self-conscious, you're being yourself even when you're doubting, you're being yourself even when you're confident. So if, if people can remember that, and I mean, you ask me for people who are younger and I'm giving the wisdom from the older, elder crowd. But every word we speak is brand new. It's like a new birth. And if you can remember that, that you are birthing yourself with every impulse, then the youth part of it, whatever it is that we value, the, and the reason I think we value youth is because we know that we want to stay alive. Because the very act of being alive has brand new birth energy in it, no matter how close you are to your last breath. So that's what I would say to you or to any... I mean, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me the question before, so I guess I'm saying <laughs> it to you. But if somebody comes along and asks me the question, I'll, I'll give some, some answer like that. And, well, and that's why we do this. Pardon? It's so true. I said your answer was poetry to my ears because it's, it is so true that it's easy to forget, especially in an age of social media, 
that every word and every action, every bit of language that we speak is birthing something new and it's birthing a revelation about ourselves and it it communicates or or fails to communicate who we are to the people around us and mm-hmm. especially when that is digital and here's my generation who who uh, you know if if I text in full sentences then you're getting effort from me <laughs> and same from any other Gen Zer but it doesn't matter what that language is it matters what the intent is how it's translated and what we can shape for the future. Um, and, and that's poetry. You said it in a much more eloquent way than I did, but it's, it is beauty that we're able to bring into the world or, you know, or the opposite of beauty. And we're always inventing language. So every utterance is an invention as well as a birth. It's coded, full of intention, full of, of hope, full of joy full of fear, full of all the emotions. So it's important for all of us to realize that. And it's important for you to realize it. It's important for me to realize it. Because you and I both have some platforms. We have people who listen to us. And when I realize that everybody I ever come in contact with, they're saying something brand new every time they speak. Whew, what a privilege. (laughs) So, so true. And I know I said I, that was the last question, but I do have to ask you one more. Do oh, well, you think go ahead. LOL should have been added to the dictionary? <laughs> so if I understand, LOL is laugh out loud, right? Is that, is, does it, <laughs> yes, or, or has, it, has it acquired other, like those, sometimes it may acquire other meanings as well. Does it still hold the same meaning, LOL? Well, it, it was laugh out loud. And then all of our parents' generation turned it into lots of love and that, you know, it, it can really mean either thing, but well, yeah, laugh out loud, whatever, whatever it was. I think they added it to the dictionary in like 2019, maybe. And there was an uproar from my parents' yeah. generation. So what do you think? I, I think it's, I think it's ridiculous to have an uproar. You have a LOL means laugh out loud. And if there are thousands of people who understand what it means, then fine, put it in the dictionary. Language is an evolving thing. We didn't get a chance to talk about the pronoun they and the revolution of pronouns to to talk about the fluidity of the way we identify ourselves. But, but we are always creating. We are always inventing. And when enough people understand something, then put it in the dictionary. Why not? And if years later they forget about it, you take it out. What's the harm? I'll Dictionary's got a lot of words it. in it. You know, L... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that snippet, James, and I'm going to go and, and just like send it in a text to like all of, all of the doubters. Now we'll say James, the, you know, the international traveler and poet and, and we'll, we'll, we'll add your biography and your credentials and then just say, Hey, here you go. LOL is a, is a true word that should be in the dictionary there, there, then and done. <laughs> I, I, that's it. I stand on that. Yes, yes, yes. So that's my answer to that. And if you have another question, I'll answer it. But I know we've had a great conversation. So if you, if you want to, I mean, we should do this once a week or something. Well, probably we would wear ourselves out if we did it once a week, maybe once a month, because <laughs> we do go pretty, pretty deep. The last time we did this, we did the same thing. So there's some precedent for it. Thank you so much for coming on, James. And I, I'm fascinated with this entire expression of, of language and the journey. So yes, please do come back. We'll, we'll find a time. 
Okay, thank you so much, Hannah, and thank you for doing all that you do. I really appreciate your work and your effort, and I do hope your husband finds the right paint color for that place you two are working on. <laughs> Lord help us, he, he needs to soon, <laughs> or I'll go crazy. Spring's coming. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.